0: Why do people want to shout and sing, go to Beirut, tell it to the masses? If you really understand what our sins deserve, and then you comprehend that you're forgiven that real guilt and real shame has been taken away, then that's worthy of shouting out about. But sometimes, as Christians, we become so oppressed in the Christian life, thinking that the Christian life is all about following rules and regulations, and avoiding certain things, and doing certain things, and we put ourselves under performance, and we forget that Jesus has saved us not only from sin, but also from religiosity. And so many Christians lose their joy either by falling into self-indulgence Or by falling into self-reliance. And Colossians deals with the second problem. Colossians deals primarily with people who were falling into a trap of religiosity. There were some teachers that blew into town and they were teaching a false doctrine of record building and record-keeping. In other words, that every single day as a Christian, God is keeping track of all of your deposits that are godly into your spiritual bank account. And He's also keeping track of all of your withdrawals, all of the bad things you do or the good things you fail to do. And at the end of the day, his pleasure and delight and favor and blessing upon you is based on that record keeping. And that leads to oppression. That leads to sucking the joy out of life. That leads to life being sucked out of the Christian. I want to give you a picture of what many believers inside look like because life and joy is being sucked out of them through a self-reliant, self-sufficient paradigm of performance. In The Two Towers, the second movie of The Lord of the Rings, written by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, there is a king of Rohan. His name is Theoden. And Theoden has been possessed by the evil wizard Saruman. And there is also a... An advisor, an evil advisor that is called Fork Tongue, that whispers lies into Theoden's ear. And when you see Theoden in this clip, he is pale, he is decrepit, and he is almost lifeless. But Gandalf, the good wizard, the Christ figure of Tolkien's stories in Lord of the Rings, he enters in and he sets. Theoden free and as you see the freedom come over Theoden as Saruman is cast out and he becomes himself again you see the color restored to his face and the youthfulness to his expression and Gandalf says breathe the free air again my friend. And that's what Paul is going to say to us through this passage. But before we read the passage, watch the clip. What a great picture of what bondage and slavery can do to a Christian. And Paul writes telling us that Jesus has freed us. From the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the oppression of performance, legalism, emotionalism, and humanism. And that's what we're going to read about in our text this morning. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. I' read Colossians 2:16 to23. This is God's word. Therefore, therefore, right, in light of everything that just went before, Which is Paul um, describing our union with Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. One of the most powerful verses, that last verse, that you'll ever see. All of our man-made Self-made religious fences are of absolutely no value in restraining the flesh. Now, we are a church that wants to see the flesh restrained. But what is hotly debated in our day is what restrains the flesh. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not traditional fences that Christians set up. It is nothing other than the power of Jesus Christ. So may God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us and he wants us to live in freedom. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lead us and guide us. We are a people that are often Uh, Tempted to a paradigm of religious performance and tempted away from hoping in Christ. So God, enable us this morning to breathe the free air again. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So three freedoms that Paul emphasizes that are ours because of the finished work of Christ. First of all, walk in freedom from legalism. Look at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, festivals, feast days, Sabbaths. These were all elements of the Mosaic law. These were all elements that God taught the Old Testament church, also known as Israel. As a matter of fact, the the only drink law in the Old Testament regards something called a Nazarite vow and certain men would take a vow never to shave and never to drink alcohol. And that's the only guidance there is as far as a command with respect to drink. But these false teachers are saying, obviously those were committed men. And if you really want a full experience of all that can be yours in Christ, you need to sacrifice the way the Nazarites sacrificed because clearly sacrifice is the most godly thing you can do. You see the trap? And how many times have you heard something similar to that? If you would just do this, or if you would just abstain from that, then you would have a more deep, spiritual experience in your walk with God. Then it talks about not only the dietary laws, but it also talks about the calendar laws, feast days, Sabbaths. If you keep these special days, like if you keep the Day of Atonement according to the Old Testament or some other feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles, Then God will show up in a special way and you'll have an existential experience, visions, dreams, signs, wonders, and your experience of God will be taken to a new level. So what they're saying here is that you'll have a deeper experience of God because it depends on your rule keeping. It depends on your behaviors. And Paul counters and says, no, it's dependent upon Christ and his work on your behalf, his obedient life to the law his substitutionary death to take upon himself the penalty of the law. And if you believe that, if you rest in that, if you transfer your trust from yourself and your own record building and your own works according to the law and trust in the finished work of Christ, his obedient life, his substitutionary death, then you are baptized into Christ and all of the blessing and favor of God that comes to a lawkeeper is yours because God gives you the identity and the descriptive position that you, in fact, have already fulfilled all the law in Christ. And you, in fact, have already engaged in experiencing the penalty for all your sin because you were in Christ on the cross and all that wrath was already poured out on you in Christ. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the free air? Do you sense the free air? There's three kinds of legalism. The first kind of legalism, you look to your own works to get to heaven. That kind of legalism, you lose your eternal soul. Okay? First kind of legalism, you trust your own works, your own efforts, your own righteousness to get to heaven you follow that legalism, you lose your soul. You're going to hell. Second kind of legalism, you trust in your performance of God's law and God's commands to give you a sense of his delight, favor, and blessing upon your life. You give into that legalism and you lose your peace and you lose your joy. That's what many Christians do. They're saved by the grace of God in Christ, as I described it. But they look to their daily performance of obedience to gauge God's favor, delight, and gladness in them. If you look to your own performance for God's delight, you're going to lose your peace, you're going to lose your joy. Third kind of legalism is you listen to human traditions... Putting you in the bondage of a prison cell because you're letting other people's convictions on a multitude of subjects, you're putting them on par with God's Word when in fact they have no business being anywhere near God's Word. We are free in Christ to do or not do a whole lot of things, and that's fine for us individually. But once you begin to make something black and white that God has left gray, that's legalism. And you have no business putting that upon other Christians. So now we know the three kinds of legalism. And Paul says we're to walk in freedom from that legalism. Why? Look at verse 17. The law was a shadow of the things that were to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, just like I am a body and I can see because of the light a shadow, the shadow is not me. The shadow is just a reflection of me. Paul is saying the Old Testament pointed to was Christ's shadow. But when Christ came, he's the reality He's the fulfillment of everything the law pointed to. He is the substance behind the shadow of the law. And again, he's pointing to the fact that in union with Christ, we have already been judged by God as having kept the whole law. And we've already been judged by God as if we've already been punished for not keeping the law. In verse 16, there's an important therefore. It refers back to the previous passage. The application of union with Christ is freedom from legalism. And we need it so desperately. Many of us know that the greatest escape artist who ever lived was a guy named Houdini. And uh, what you may not know is that every town Houdini walked into for a show, he issued a challenge to the town's police department. He said no matter what jail they put him in, in a matter of minutes he could escape. And every single town he went to, he backed up the claim, except once. He went into the town, they put him in the jail, they slammed the door behind him, and he immediately uh, took out from his belt this long, flexible piece of wire and began working on the lock. And immediately he could sense something was different. He worked on it for 30 minutes, much longer than he normally works on a lock. And then he worked out it for an hour. And then two hours passed. And he couldn't understand why he could not escape. Finally, in frustration, absolute being worn out, he sat down and leaned against the door and it opened. It had never been locked to begin with. Yet he had been using all of his methodologies, all of his resources, all of his energies to try to get out of a locked door that wasn't locked. And that's what many of us are doing when it comes to legalism. You're trying to earn on a daily basis God's favor and delight. And it's wearing you out. It's sucking the life out from you, just like Saruman tried to suck the life out of Theodon. Paul says, do not give in. I mean, he couldn't be more clear. It's an imperative, a present imperative. Don't ever let anyone pass judgment on you in the matter of food, drink, days, and festivals. If you're worn out in the Christian life, Fall afresh upon Christ and watch the prison doors swing open. Walk and freedom from legalism. Secondly, walk and freedom from emotionalism. This is a huge deal among God's people today. We have begun to substitute subjective emotional experience for objective truth and promises in God's Word. And we can't do that. If you're enslaved to your emotions, then you're going to gauge your intimacy with God based on only those times where things are going well and you're doing okay emotionally. But life is hard, and we're broken, and the feelings aren't always there. And Paul says, don't let anybody get you to question your faith or your walk with God because your emotions aren't where they say they should be. Look at verse 18. Let no one, again, present imperative, don't ever let anyone anytime disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Asceticism is severe treatment of the body. We'll get to that in a second. Worship of angels is the idea that if you practice a life of sacrificial self-denial, God will show up in such a way that he'll give you dreams and visions that place you in the very place where the angels, the cherubim, and the seraphim are worshiping God at the throne of God in heaven. And you'll have this incredible, ecstatic, emotional experience. It led the Colossians to seek emotional experiences. And that happens so often in our day as well. Let no one disqualify you. That's the idea of an umpire ejecting you from the game. Uh, A soccer referee giving you a red card. Uh, It's this idea that you don't measure up. And the false teaching... Making its way throughout the church at Colossae was unless you had these existential experiences, and unless you experienced these emotions, then you were a second class Christian. And there was more for you, and you were missing that. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I've been made to feel that way by people from other theological backgrounds. That said, I needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I needed the second baptism. I needed to speak in tongues. I needed, I needed, I needed. And it almost made me into Theoden. I had the life sucked out of me. And the joy sucked out of me. And Paul says, don't you ever Let anybody do that to you. Because if you know Christ, you have all you need for the deepest intimacy and experience of God that you could ever long for. Don't give in. Asceticism, harsh treatment of the body. Now, it wasn't asceticism as an end in itself. So you've got to understand what the Colossians were dealing with and then how do you apply it to your life today in the here and now. They were being told that if you treated your body harshly, if you engaged in extreme self-denial, that would be the means through which God would pour out a unique anointing of His Spirit and you would experience ecstatic and emotional Kinds of moments. You know, there were, throughout history, there's been all kinds of people that thought like this. Do you know that for a while there were some hermits, uh, some Christian hermits called stylites? Now, what do you think they're called stylites? Well, think of stylus. Okay, stylites, these, these poles that looked like pens went way up in the air. And there were men who lived on those poles for 30 to 50 years and never came down until they died. Thinking that severe treatment of the body and extreme self-denial was the means of experiencing God's power And presence, the way the angels in God's presence experience that moment. Okay, you may not be sitting on a pole. But what do you do that is very parallel to that thought? If I just did this, if I just did that, if I could just be more committed by doing this, Then, then, finally, I'd experience the Christian life the way I expect that I should. And Paul says, no, no, no. You don't need anything else. Everything you could possibly long for is found in Christ. Now, the problem is, it may not happen the way you want it to, and it may not happen as soon as you want it to. It may be that your expectations of the Christian life are way out of whack because you've been listening to these people who are tied to emotionalism. You know, small things done slowly over a long period of time. That's what leads to spiritual intimacy with God. There's, there's no big thing you could figure out that if you could just do it, you'd have this instantaneous ecstatic experience. And then it says these men would go into detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. See, Paul had one of these experiences, but it wasn't because he severely treated his body. Remember, he was called up to the third heaven, but he didn't boast about it. What did God say? These were things that Paul was not even permitted to speak. Why do you suppose God did that? Because he didn't want any of us feeling like second-class citizens. Or he didn't want any of us to hear what happened so that then we would try to duplicate it in our own lives. Emotions in the Christian life are important. They're valuable. They're good. Emotional-ism is never good. Emotional-ism is allowing your faith to be run by your emotions. And interpreting everything that happens to you according to your emotions rather than according to the objective standard of God's Word. Emotionalism is making more of a priority of subjective existential existential experience over the objective Word of God in its truth and in its promises. And so, in fact, Paul says in verse 19, they, They have stopped holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. You see this? Paul is just saying to every question, to every problem, Jesus, what do you... Jesus, but what about... Jesus, what do you... Jesus. Paul's answer to everything is Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's how you can know false teaching. If you hear somebody go on and on and on and drone and drone and drone about do this, don't do that, do this. This is the key to parenting. This is the key to marriage. This is the key to success at work. This is the key, blah, blah, blah. blah. No. If he didn't say Jesus, then he's a false teacher. Jesus is our only hope. And when we start looking to anything else, Our own obedience even for for what's going to give us God's delight. Well, first of all, legalism just doesn't work. And neither does emotionalism. Because who do you think you are? That you have ever lived a solitary millisecond as God wants you to live. Perfect love for Him all the time. And perfect love for your neighbor all the time. Oh, and by the way, remember Jesus says oftentimes your neighbor is your enemy. There's nobody who does that. If you put yourself under the law, if you put yourself into this emotionalism paradigm, you're sunk. Or you're pretending. And I've found that many people do that. And I need to spend some gracious, patient time with them. And sometimes people need to do it with me because I'm just as prone and say, now wait a minute, you really think God's delight is based on how well you're doing? Well, let me tell you just how poorly you're doing to rid you of that idea. Did you love your wife perfectly in the past 20 minutes? And then, even if you did, did you have any thoughts going through your mind that were not kind, that that were not godly? Any thoughts at all? Well, then you're done. God's not pleased. So we need to be aware. Now, when it comes particularly to emotionalism, I, I remembered a train diagram that I was taught, and it's really good. It was done through a CREW, which was Campus to Save for Christ, and the train was fact, faith, and feeling. Now, the fact, that's the Bible, that's the, the, wor- the objective work of Christ, uh, the promise of God's Word. Faith is what God calls from us, and faith is primarily receptive, right? We don't work it up. It's a mustard seed of faith that simply receives. All you need to have faith is need, looking to the facts of God's Word. And then the caboose is feeling. Now, there's no power in the caboose. God does call us to faith. That's the coal car that the coal goes into the fact, and that combusts the power that enables the train to go, right? But we used to make, not make fun, we used to challenge each other by, uh, if someone was was uh, allowing subjective experience to trump the objective truth of God's Word, we would say, you know what, you're caboosing it today. Maybe we need to do that to each other sometimes. In, in love. Not My goodness, never. Because we all caboose it. But there's no power in the caboose. Now notice, it is part of the train. I'm not saying mo- emotions are not important. They're vital. They're, they're, they tend to be uh, warning lights. of of something going on inside of us. But emotional-ism has no power at all. How are you tempted to gauge your intimacy with God based on your subjective, existential, ecstatic, emotional experience or or lack thereof? Paul says don't ever let that happen. And then thirdly and finally, walk in freedom from humanism. No, I'm, I'm, I'm defining humanism as this outlook of thought, a system of attaching prime importance to human thought, human opinions, human systems, and human effort, okay? If it's divorced from Christ, it is humanism. Paul addresses humanism when he says in verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to its regulations? The elemental spirits of the world are the ABCs of world moralism, of, of humanistic, pragmatic moralism. That's the elemental spirits of the world. And he gives an example in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. By the way, notice what pragmatic humanism does. It defines the Christian life by what we don't do. How many of us do that? How many of our friends that we know that aren't yet Christians think that's the Christian life? Because we've given them that impression. Christian life is not defined by what we don't do. The Christian life is defined by being in Christ. Remember what I said earlier? We're going to end here in just a second with these things are of no value at all in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I I hope you understand there's a sense in which this whole sermon is about holiness and godliness and how you don't get there. You're not going to become godly or live a holy life through legalism. It's not going to work. As a matter of fact, it will actually cause sin to spring up in you even more powerfully. Emotionalism, it will not lead to godliness. It will lead to just the opposite. Because you'll be caught up in subjectivism and eventually you're going to be way out there in la-la land. And humanism. This this pragmatic approach to the Christian life that we actually think we can behave our way into a new heart. It's just not true. The only thing that can change our hearts is Jesus. The only way can be we can be transformed is by continually running to Jesus in fresh repentance and fresh faith. And then He changes our hearts. And then he gives us the desire to love him and to serve him through obedience. I'm not saying one thing this morning about minimizing obedience. I'm not saying one thing this morning about going off into cheap grace. I'm telling you, your only hope for godly living, your only hope for the feelings that are good feelings that flow from putting faith in Christ your only hope for those kinds of emotions is looking to Christ not looking for the experience and your only hope of subduing your flesh is not building fences like i see many christians do because you, you, You realize the first fence was almost built before the fall. And what amounts to the fall before the fall? Eve told Satan, God said, We may not eat of it nor even touch it. Huh. That's exactly what it says here in Colossians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Folks, if God would have said, don't touch it, then he would have meant don't touch it. But he said, don't eat it. See, we we can't walk around. Now, personally, individually, if you want to build a fence, that's fine. But don't think for a second you're more godly. And don't think for a second people who don't have your fence are less godly. But God didn't tell Eve not to touch it. He told Eve not to eat it. Now, you're thinking, well, she's just being wise and cautious. Is she? My good friend Brian Chapel gives a quiz. He says, "Which is worse?" To allow what God forbids, what or forbid what God allows. Which is worse? In your own mind, which is worse? To allow what God forbids. That's pretty bad. Allowing something God forbids. That, that's clearly going against God's word. Or, forbidding what God allows. Well, heck. That's just erring on the side of caution. What could possibly be wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing except it's against the gospel. It's against God's word. Paul just railed on it in this passage. Do not drink. Do not eat. Make sure you practice calendar. Righteousness. It's a trick question. Both. Both. Are equally dangerous to the Christian. Allowing it, God forbids, that's obvious. Clearly wrong. Forbidding what God allows, no. I'm telling you, it is just as dangerous to the spiritual life when you start living that way. When you start living out of the paradigm that I'm going to forbid something God allows. Now, for yourself, that's fine. I'm talking about where you actually begin to have the conviction that everybody should live like you're living. Now, that's pragmatic humanism. There's a, <clears throat> a station in St. Louis. The cardinals are always on it. It's called the Mighty Mox, K-M-O-X, AM station. Got a lot of power. can be heard from many states. And... uh Covenant Seminary, where I've been on the board for, gosh, over 20 years now, uh, there's a class that was being taught on preaching, and uh, the students would always talk about this drive, time, uh, inspirational moment. And uh, this guy would talk about, you know, keys to a successful marriage and good ideas for parenting and uh how to handle finances and uh, how to have a fulfilling day at work. and I mean, people were just always talking about it. People wanted to get in their cars for drive time just to hear this guy. And the homiletics professor, the preaching professor, played, uh, because they're only like 30 seconds long, day after day after day after day after day of this guy. And then they discussed, what do you think? Man, so practical, so relevant. And that's the way we really need to preach, isn't it? And the homiletics professor said, that guy's not even a Christian. He's part of a Christian cult. And none of our future preachers in the church of Jesus Christ Could discern it. How much legalism and emotionalism and humanism have we begun to embrace? And you know how you can tell. Is there any Jesus in it? Actually, it's not. Is there any Jesus? Because we can sprinkle Jesus places. Is the paradigm Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Or is it a substitute? If you know Christ, everything you could ever need or long for, for an intimate walk with God, you have been given. And don't let anyone try to tell you differently. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, would you please, please open our eyes? Because, Lord, the flesh is just as legalistic as it is self-indulgent. And, Lord, all of us want feelings. All of us want to experience you, especially on a Sunday morning. But, Lord, keep us from emotionalism and subjectivism that trumps objective truth of scripture. And then Lord, we do live in a a society where we tend to trust on our own efforts, trust on our own opinions, trust in our own suggestions about everything, rather than saying, no, wait a minute, what does God's word really say? Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, I pray that the gospel would have been clear today through the work of your spirit, that they would transfer their trust from themselves and their own efforts and works to Jesus Christ alone. But, Father, for the rest of us, maybe we're Christians and we find ourselves feeling like Theoden. God, let us breathe the free air again of Jesus. We ask this for his glory and our sake. Amen. Let's all stand. to us hear the benediction. Again, the benediction ends with Jesus. Uh, That's the beautiful thing about leaving with a pronouncement of blessing is you don't parade out there with me, myself, and I promising to do better. But you leave looking at Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.